brought a Bible with you to church, it is my honor and privilege to invite you to point that Bible to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 6. Luke, chapter 6. We are in the middle of a series through the Gospel of Luke, and we've made it to chapter 6. We're going to be reading from verse 12 down to 16. If you're new, I'm Jamie, and I'm happy to be one of the pastors here. If you don't have a Bible, there should be one in the pew in front of you. And uh, go ahead and grab one of the black ones. You'll find Luke chapter 6 on page 862, kind of middle of the way through the first left-hand column, right under the heading, the 12 apostles. So here's what we'll do. I'll go ahead and read verses 12 to 16. I'll ask for the Lord's help on our time together, and then we'll work our way verse by verse through this passage as we consider the glory of our good God in these words before us. Luke chapter 6, beginning at verse 12. Hear now the word of the living God. In these days, Jesus went out to the mountain to pray. And all night, he continued in prayer to God. And when day came, he called his disciples and chose from them twelve whom he named apostles, Simon, whom he named Peter, and Andrew, his brother, and James, and John, and Philip, and Bartholomew, and Matthew, and Thomas, and James, the son of Alphaeus, and Simon, who is called the Zealot. And Judas, the son of James, and Judas Iscariot, who became a traitor. Let's pray. Father in heaven, would you now do the miracle that we all came here expecting you to do? Give us ears that we may hear the word of God. Give us eyes that we may see the beauty of the Son of God. And may we behold wonderful things from your word. And may our hearts, which are so cold, be set aflame with desire for and enjoyment of Jesus, who is called the Christ. We ask this in his precious name. And the church said, Amen. Every year, the National Football League hosts an event which they call the Combine. College football players from across the country are invited to Indianapolis where they are to participate in a week-long showcase of their mental and physical abilities. They do this in front of coaches and managers and scouts from different NFL teams. It's sort of like a giant field day like you used to have in grade school. There's a 40-yard dash and a high jump and cone drills. They may even do a frisbee toss. I don't know. The point of the combine is to demonstrate the athlete's abilities so that coaches and managers of teams can determine whether a player would be a good fit for their team. 
And so a good performance at the combine would often increase the chances of a player being drafted in the NFL. And so NFL teams will then meet for weeks after the combine. They'll evaluate the needs of their team and watch film and consider the performances from the combine, and then they'll prepare to draft specific athletes that they're hoping will fill in gaps in their team's weaknesses. All the teams do this, except for the Cleveland Browns, who it seems they just pick the names out of a hat or something. Well, Luke chapter 6, verse 12 to 16, is sort of like a disciple draft. Jesus Christ, God the Son, calls the disciples to him. There's lots of them at this point. And he chooses from them 12 whom he names apostles. But the disciple draft is nothing whatsoever like the NFL draft. We're going to learn in a few moments that the Lord does not seem to choose these men based on their spiritual abilities. It seems our Lord's choice of these men is based on something far more glorious, far more dependable. His Father's sovereign will. For Jesus would later pray to God the Father, Yours they were, and you gave them to me. Jesus chooses twelve and names them apostles. Here's the big idea this morning. It pleases the Lord to act for his own glory in choosing sinners and screw-ups, shaping them into spirit-filled, self-sacrificing messengers for his kingdom. It pleases the Lord to act for his own glory in the choosing of sinners and screw-ups and shaping them into spirit-filled, self-sacrificing messengers for his kingdom. That's the big idea this morning. Messiah's mission and Messiah's means toward his mission will be the subject of our time together this morning. This is the story of how our extraordinary Savior uses ordinary people to build his church to the glory of his Father. It's a simple outline this morning. Number one, Messiah's missional method in verse 12. Messiah's missional method. Number two, Messiah's missional means in verse 13. And then finally, Messiah's missional men in verses 14 to 16. So that's where we're headed. We'll start with the Messiah's missional method as we consider verse 12 again. Verse 12, in these days, Jesus went out to the mountain to pray. And all night, he continued in prayer to God. Messiah, Jesus Christ, has a mission. And this is the method for his mission. And it is prayer. Prayerful dependence on his Father. If any person had less reason to pray, it was the Lord Jesus Christ. But there is a law fixed 
from before time began, that God the Son would never act independent of God the Father. And he would never act independent of the power of God the Holy Spirit. This is Messiah's missional method. Prayerful dependence on God the Father. I take this from this passage and from John chapter 5. Where Jesus said this in John 5 of himself. The Son can do nothing of his own accord but only what he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, that the Son does likewise. He goes on to say, I can do nothing on my own accord. As I hear, presumably in prayer, as I hear, I judge. And my judgment is just, because I seek not my own will, but the will of him who sent me. Jesus seeks the will of his Father. Every moment of his ministry, every step he took in ministry, Jesus relied on his Father. The first man and the first woman acted independently of God and rebelled against God and brought ruin into the world that God had made. And Jesus came into that world to undo what the first man did. And he did it as one sent by the Father as one in complete obedience to the Father. And so Luke tells us, Jesus went out to the mountain to pray. Now, we're not told what mountain, and we're not even told what he prayed. We're only told that he prayed all night. But this is what prayer is, an expression of utter dependence upon God. Prayer is relaying all things to God, receiving all things from God, and relying in all things on God. That's prayer. And at this point in Jesus' ministry, he has many disciples, he has done many miracles, he has preached the kingdom of God, and many people have come, and they are following him. And his ministry, as we saw last week, has put him into contention with the religious leaders of his day. Persecution is coming. The cross is coming. Jesus is headed toward the very purpose for which he was sent. And now it is time for him to choose apostles. And the Lord chooses these men, not arbitrarily. Truth be told, Jesus does nothing haphazard. He is a man who knows his purpose which he has received from his Father. God sent him on a mission to redeem the world which had fallen under the curse of man's sin. He came to bring eternal joy to all who turn to him in faith. This is the Messiah's mission, and he is dead serious about it. And therefore, he does nothing carelessly. He does nothing without purpose. Jesus' whole life has been leveraged to this. He is to choose 12 men to be apostles, messengers, who will lay the foundation of the church which he will build to his Father's glory. And so he prays. God the Father will direct him. Football teams spend hours preparing for 
who they should draft or trade so that they can win games and earn money for their owners. Jesus knew his mission. He knew his purpose. And so he prayed all night long, long hours about this decision. And I just have to wonder if we give similar time to praying about life decisions that we have to make, which will also affect the mission of God through us. Jesus prayed because Jesus knew his purpose. He knew why he was sent. This was Messiah's method. Prayerful dependence on the Father. So that when the day came for him to choose his disciples, he would know his Father's will and he would obey his Father's command. So the Messiah has a method. Next we learn that Messiah has means. Messiah has missional means. Let's look at verse 13 again. And when day came, he called his disciples and chose from them twelve, whom he named apostles. As I mentioned earlier, Jesus has many disciples at this point, and he's called all of them before him. And from them, he chooses 12. These were the men his father and he had picked. We know this because later he told the disciples, you did not choose me, but I chose you that you would bear fruit. This is the disciple draft. Jesus chooses 12. Why 12? Why 12? Well, to any Jew, the number 12 is extremely significant. Israel had 12 tribes. And so Jesus is doing something new here. He is inaugurating a new covenant people of God. New covenant people who would be built upon the witness of the 12 apostles. And upon their witness, the Lord Jesus would build his church. An innumerable people from every tribe and language and nation. That's what he was going to do. That was to come. But first, they needed trained. Mark's gospel adds that Jesus chose these men so that they might be with him and he might send them out to preach. Messiah's missional method was prayerful dependence on his father. And Messiah's missional means was to train men to preach the gospel, who will in turn train men to preach the gospel, who will in turn, and so on, and so on. The saints of God are then equipped for every good work as the gospel advances across the earth. Jesus chose ordinary individuals to be with him, to learn his ways, to hear his word, to know his heart. And these men would be shaped by him. They would adopt his method. They would adopt his mission. And he would send them out to preach, to tell others about him. Messiah has means. Men are his means.
And Luke writes, he named them apostles. The word apostle means sent one. Someone who has been sent forth by another to accomplish some work, to announce some news on behalf of the other. And the messenger carries the authority of the one who sent them. The Messiah has means. Men are his means. In the late 18th century, William Carey, the father of the modern missions movement, knew this better than the men of his day. Because God placed a passion upon young Carey's heart to go to the unreached with the gospel. And he brought this matter before his fellow ministers. And at one particular meeting, he was told, young man, sit down. When God is pleased to convert the heathen, he will do it without you or my help. And so, Carey produced an essay with a rather inelegant title, An Inquiry into the Obligation of Christians to Use Means for the Conversion of the Heathens, in which the religious state of the different nations of the world, the success of former undertakings, and the practicability of further undertakings are considered. It's been since shortened to the inquiry. (laughs) But Carey's point was this, that God has reached the unreached with the gospel using means, and the means are men sent. And young Carey is saying, here I am, send me. Carey's essay would lead to the founding of the Baptist Missionary Society. Men sent are the means, and they would send men. And when William Carey was sent, he was sent to the nation of India. And when he went to India in 1793, there was only one known Christian in the entire country. And today, 27 million people call in the name of Christ in India. Jesus uses means. Men are his means. And Messiah's means are just ordinary men. Just ordinary men. Of the twelve apostles, none of them are priests. None of them are Pharisees. Not one of them was a scribe. You can't even tell if any one of them are formally trained. But these men would change the world. And it's not because they are extraordinary. No, they're quite ordinary. It was because Jesus is extraordinary. They are simple servants of an extraordinary Savior. And so who were these men? Twelve men on the list that follows. Of the six apostles, uh, of the twelve apostles, six of them share a name with another apostle. Four, maybe five of them have two names. There are two Simons on the list. There are three Jameses on this list. And none of the Jameses on this list are the James who wrote the book of James. And of the two James who are apostles in this list, the third is a dad of one of two Judases. So there's a lot of names, and it's all tangled up. It's, it's like watching Downton Abbey all over again. And so we'll work through this list, and I will do for you what my dear wife did for me when I watched Downton. We'll hit pause, and I'll say, oh, here's who this person is and how they're related to this person. So that's where we're headed next. Verse 14. Messiah's missional men. Simon, whom he named Peter, and Andrew, his brother, and James and John, and Philip, and Bartholomew, 
and Matthew, and Thomas, and James the son of Alphaeus, and Simon, who was called the Zealot, and Judas the son of James, and Judas Iscariot, who became a traitor. So Simon is the first name on the list. Anytime the apostles are listed, Simon's name is always first. Simon is Peter, as Luke has told us. Sometimes in your Bible, this man is called Simeon. Sometimes Simon Peter. Sometimes Cephas, just for fun. We've met him before, back in chapter 5. He's the guy who gave Jesus his boat from which Jesus preached to the crowds. He's the one who fell at Jesus' feet and said, Depart from me, I'm a sinner. After all night praying... The Lord Jesus chooses Simon to be his apostle. He's an unemployed professional fisherman. He's impetuous. He's headstrong. He tends to put his foot in his mouth, and sometimes he even speaks for Satan. Obvious choice. Does he have any brothers? Why, yes, he does. Jesus chooses Andrew, Simon's brother. Andrew, we're told in John's Gospel, was once a disciple of John the Baptist. And it was Andrew who first brought Peter to see Jesus, which is interesting because every time, almost every single time you see Andrew in the Gospels, he's bringing someone to Jesus. He's like some of you. You're always bringing people to see Jesus. Here's what I love about Andrew. Andrew is always in the background. His brother gets all the playing time. He gets the spotlight. His brother gets to write books in the Bible. When Jesus goes up the Mount of Transfiguration, he picks, his, he picks Peter, James, John, not Andrew. Why not Andrew? I don't know. Does Andrew, is he mad about this? He doesn't seem to be. He just keeps bringing people to Jesus in the background, bringing people to Jesus. I love this. May the Lord grant a hundred more Andrews to this church. Andrew and Simon are originally from the town of Bethsaida, but they later moved to Capernaum where they apparently went into business with a couple of other fishermen, also brothers named James and John, who worked for their father, a guy by the name of Zebedee. James and John are passionate men, fervent men, driven men. They are inseparable in the Gospels. Jesus gives these boys the nickname Sons of Thunder. Don't you just love that Jesus gives people nicknames? Well, these boys earned that nickname. Later in the Gospel of Luke, Jesus sends the twelve out on their first missions trip. And when they come back, John tells Jesus that while we were out there, we met a dude who was doing some stuff in your name. But we rebuked him because he's not with us. And Jesus said, that's dumb. Don't do that. And then right after that... Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem, and some folks don't want him to go to Jerusalem. And James and John ask Jesus, you you want us to take care of it? Because we can, like, call down fire from heaven and burn them to a crisp. We can do that, you know. And Jesus is like, oh, can you? Can you do that? No, I don't want that to happen. The Lord rebukes them. Sons of thunder. And apparently they got this boldness from their mother. One time... James and John's mama went to Jesus and said, when you get on your throne, I want two thrones established on both sides of you, one for this son of mine and one for this son of mine. That's a bold woman. So maybe sons of thunder means sons of thunder. (laughs) No wonder Zebedee was a fisherman. John is called the beloved disciple in your Bible. He's very close to Jesus. 
This is, this is the disciple who laid his head on Jesus' chest at the Last Supper. That when they weren't sure who, who the traitor was among them, they nudged John and they said, you ask him for us. John goes on to write five books in the New Testament. And in his own gospel, he simply calls himself the one whom Jesus loved. Now there's a man who knows who he really is. So who do we have so far? We have Peter, Andrew, James, and John. Four untrained, unemployed fishermen. Little rowdy, little rough around the edges, little slow on the uptake. Hashtag squad goals. Next up in the draft is Philip. Philip also grew up in Bethsaida. He's one of the disciples who was the first one to follow, one of the first disciples to follow Jesus. Philip is a tremendously practical guy. He's a calculating guy, pragmatist. At one point, Jesus is preaching for a very long time, and everybody's hungry, and they don't have any food to feed everyone. And Philip is the guy who goes to Jesus and said, where are we going to get enough bread to feed all these people? 200 denarii worth of bread would not be enough. He did the numbers. He's also the disciple who said to Jesus, show us the Father, and it'll be enough. He's calculating. He's a pragmatist. And Philip has a buddy named Bartholomew. Bartholomew goes by another name, Nathaniel. So when you see Nathaniel in your Bible, it's Bartholomew. And Philip tells Nathaniel about Jesus, this Messiah from Nazareth. And Nathaniel says, Can anything good come from Nazareth? And then he meets Jesus. And he realizes that the only good thing came out of Nazareth. Jesus calls him an Israelite indeed in whom there is no deceit. Bartholomew is a straight shooter. Honest. Next up in the draft is Matthew. Now we know Matthew. We've met Matthew before back in chapter 5. Matthew is Levi, the tax collector. And you'll remember from a few weeks ago, we looked at this, Rome was in charge of the, in these days, and they collected taxes from the Jewish people. And they commissioned Jews to collect money for Rome from other Jews. And this job of collecting taxes was farmed out to the highest bidder, so tax collectors would make themselves rich by collecting more taxes than was due. More taxes even that they promised to Rome. They were traitors. They were extortioners. Matthew was much hated and probably very wealthy. After Matthew comes Thomas. Thomas is a twin. Sometimes in your Bible he's called Didymus, which means twin. Now, Thomas has the unfortunate reputation of being called the doubting Thomas or the doubting disciple. And this is because after he heard that Jesus had been raised from the dead, he couldn't believe it. He said, I won't believe. I refuse to believe unless I put my, see the scars in his hands and put my hand on his side. Well, he did. And then he did. Ninth pick in the draft goes to James. Not that James, different James. Not that James either, different James. This is James, the son of Alphaeus. He's sometimes called James the Less, L-E-S-S. 
He gets this name because in Mark's gospel at the crucifixion, James, James is looking on from a distance. And there in Mark's gospel, Mark calls him James the Micros. From, what we, from, from where we get the word micro. Which word just means small, less, short. So it could be that he's just younger than the other James. Or he's just shorter than the other James, but less. Is that fair? I don't know. You'll have to ask him when you get to heaven. Next up is Simon, who is called the Zealot. Zealot is not a nickname. It's a reputation. Or most probably, it is a political affiliation. Simon is part of an aggressive, radical, revolutionary political party that exists in Israel in those days. Simon is an Israelite nationalist. He believed, or they believed, in using whatever means, even violence at times, to overthrow Rome and to establish Israel as their own nation state. These were extremists, and they would sometimes turn to terrorism. And Simon makes the team. And you can imagine the reaction of the disciples when Jesus chooses him. Like if you watched the NFL draft over the last few days, sometimes when somebody gets drafted, there's boos. I wonder if there were boos among the disciples when Jesus said, I choose Simon, who is called the zealot. But think this through. How like our Lord to take a guy like Simon the zealot and to put him into ministry alongside Matthew, the tax collector. One of them made Rome rich, and the other worked to make Rome burn. Jesus takes the zealot and the turncoat and brings them together. That is so like Jesus. To take two people about as different as they could possibly be, and to unite them in him as they minister side by side for the sake of the gospel. It is my conviction that if we are doing things right as a church, when the gospel of Jesus Christ is central, when the person of Jesus Christ is central, the world won't know what to do with us. How is he and he together in unity? But I thought she was, and I thought she was, and yet, here they are, unified, working together, singing together, and praising Jesus together, and laughing together, and submitting to one another. But there's only one way that works. Jesus Christ, risen from the dead. Two more picks. Next up is Judas. Not that Judas. He has other names too, like the other disciples. In Matthew's gospel, he's called Thaddeus, which he probably liked that name better. Once he's called, in one of the Gospels, he's called Judas, not Iscariot. For obvious reasons, probably got tired of telling people, hi, my name is Judas, not that Judas. We actually don't know that much about Judas, not that Judas. We know a lot more about the Judas we know about, Judas Iscariot. He's the one, Luke tells us, is the one who betrayed the Lord Jesus. Judas never truly believed in Jesus. 
Judas' heart was captured by self-interest and greed. Jesus put him in charge of the money, and he helped himself to it. And then betrayed the Lord Jesus for 30 pieces of silver. And it should not go without notice that Judas Iscariot was handpicked by Jesus himself. Did Jesus, Jesus know that Judas would betray him? Of course he did. It was in the plan of God that the scriptures would be fulfilled. And yet he chose him. These are Messiah's men, chosen by the Lord of glory, ordinary in every way, and He shaped them by His presence and by His Word, and through them He changed the world. They gave their lives to following Jesus, to carrying the gospel to the ends of the earth. These were men sent. Peter was martyred on an upside-down cross in the city of Rome. Andrew went to the part of our world that we now call Russia, where he was crucified, tradition says, on an X-shaped cross. Traditionally, he hung there for days before dying. James was killed by Herod in Acts chapter 12. The apostle Philip went to North Africa, preaching the gospel where he was eventually arrested and killed. Tradition has Thomas preaching as far east as India before he is martyred. Matthew, it is said, was stabbed to death preaching in Ethiopia. Same with Bartholomew. James the Less went to Syria, where he was clubbed to death. Simon the Zealot was killed in Persia for not sacrificing to a sun god. Of all the apostles, only John lived to an old age only John was not martyred, but like his brothers, he suffered greatly for the cause of Christ. And through these men, upon their witness, the Lord changed the world. And what is the point of all this? The point is that our extraordinary Savior uses ordinary folks to accomplish His extraordinary mission. And He gives ordinary people like you and me new life, new meaning, new purpose. He gives a Spirit-empowered boldness to sacrifice everything and to go and to tell others about Him. And when they do, they often suffer. And when they suffer, they often do it with joy, praising God that they're counted worthy to suffer for His name. Church, Jesus is still in the business of calling ordinary people to Himself 
for his extraordinary mission. He takes ordinary men and women and through the ordinary means of grace, shapes them into messengers of his glorious gospel. And he calls them from all over. He calls them from the political left and the political right. He chooses background people like Andrew. He chooses brazen and loud people like James and John. He even chooses chumps like Peter and me. And this is good news for everyone in this room because it means that anyone can get in on this. I mean, just look around. I love these people. There's nothing extraordinary about these people. The only thing that's extraordinary is their extraordinary Savior who saved them. If you're not a Christian, this is the best news. It's news that Jesus chooses people like you who have sold their lives down the river by their sin and rebellion against God. People who have abandoned God's purpose for their life have now found their life without purpose. In search of meaning, on a wild goose chase without a goose. And friend, if that's you, turn to Jesus Christ today. He came to save people like you. To give his life on the cross, to die the death you deserve to die. And God raised him on the third day. And he will grant forgiveness to all who turn to him in faith. And what's more, is he grants Sinners and screw-ups like us, a new life with a new purpose. He restores God's true purpose for their life. So after church today, find someone who looks like a regular and ask them to meet with you. I know that they'll rearrange their entire week to meet with you and to tell you about this extraordinary Savior who saves ordinary people. If you are a Christian, this is the best news. Because it means that Jesus chooses ordinary sinners and screw-ups like us, sending them with the message of His gospel. It means that your performance at a spiritual combine doesn't matter. It doesn't qualify you and it won't disqualify you. It is Jesus' performance and Jesus' choice. That's all that matters. And so it pleases the Lord to act for His own glory in choosing sinners and screw-ups like us. To shape us into spirit-filled, self-sacrificing messengers for His kingdom. And since anyone can get in on this, everyone should leave here today and tell everyone about this. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we confess to you that in our view of your Son, who is our Savior, we have seen him too small. Although we've confessed to his lordship over our lives, Lord, we spend much of our lives living for other things, lesser things. Lord, we readily confess that we think far too much about 
our mission than yours. And we are a people too easily pleased, too easily distracted. And we ask that you would forgive us. And Father, I ask that you would raise up from these people in this room, men and women, empowered by joy in the Holy Spirit, to give everything and to take the name of Christ where it has not been known. Will you raise up men and women from this place, from this church, to be equipped to serve the mission of God among the unreached? Lord, would you send me and my family? And for those who stay, Lord, move upon them to give no less. To spend their lives serving the advance of the gospel locally, in their neighborhood, in their cul-de-sacs, in their blocks. Grant a generosity to these, your people, who've been saved by the precious blood of your Son. And make them a generous people. Generous with their time, generous with their talents, and generous with their treasures. To leverage their whole lives to seeing Christ formed in one another. and Seeing the name of Christ exalted from every language and tribe and people and nation. Dear Lord, spare us from wasting our lives and our resources on things which do not matter. And give us grace to spend ourselves on the advance of the gospel and the furtherance of your kingdom. For your glory, we ask. Amen. If you're trusting in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, the Bible gives us an assurance of pardon. 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 15, we read, This saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost.